This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. Today, we're featuring an interview with Amy Westervelt, a peer of ours in the climate podcast space. Amy's an award-winning investigative journalist and executive producer of Critical Frequency, an independent podcast company. She's produced the series Drilled, Damages, and Hot Take, among other projects. Her work covers Big Oil's methods of shaping public opinion and legal rulings in its favor, which they've been doing for decades. The idea that, like, climate denial was a thing that happened in the past, that, like, these companies are any different now than they were in the 80s, is not really backed by any evidence. I first started listening to Amy's work when Drilled and Climate One were both nominated for an iHeartRadio podcast award in 2019. I went to Hollywood for the red carpet event hosted by Will Ferrell. It was very glam. And Drilled won our category. Amy's work casts oil companies as climate villains, which they certainly are in their production and distribution of climate-disrupting fuels. Still, she recognizes the companies are not monoliths, and the people working in technical jobs in the field aren't the ones crafting disinformation or obstructing climate policy in legislatures. That's done by a relatively few people at the top. And for them, there's been almost no accountability for their climate crimes. True. And I think that distinction is important to focus on the executives at the top leading disinformation and policy campaigns and not the rank and file workers who are not the villains in this story. Those executives at the top claim their policy and PR campaigns are protected corporate speech. Amy says that's dangerous for our democracy. What does that open the door for for companies to be able to do if lying in the interest of shaping politics is okay? And one thing I learned from Amy in this episode is the ties Justice Amy Coney Barrett has with Shell Oil, her father's employer for decades. As a lower court judge, she recused herself from a Shell case in an apparent attempt to avoid a conflict of interest. But Justice Barrett did not recuse herself when a major case about oil companies came before the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll hear a bit about that category of suits, known as nuisance cases, in this episode. We taped this conversation in front of a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California. And I started by asking Amy about something she covers in her first episode of Drilled that will probably surprise you. Decades ago, Exxon was funding remarkable research into non-fossil forms of energy, including nuclear, batteries, and even solar. It was striving to mimic Bell Labs, the famed research facility named after Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone. Exxon was ambitious. This was a, an initiative that Exxon started in the 70s. It was their Exxon Research and Engineering facility. And I spoke with several former Exxon scientists who all described it the same way, which was that Exxon wanted it to be the Bell Labs of energy. So, And for people who don't remember the Bell Labs... Right. Say, say how big a deal Bell Labs Bell Labs, is. like, invented the cell phone, uh, you know, amongst many other transistors, technologies. Yeah. yeah, satellites, cell phones, transistors. So they wanted to do that for energy. And this is, you know, just to sort of set the, the historical context, this is happening in, in the 70s. You've had the oil embargo against the U.S. Jimmy Carter is pushing for investments in different types of energy, and, and the oil companies want to be part of this. Right. So they want to be not just oil companies, but energy companies get into right. solar and all sorts of different things. And right. then uh, there's some leadership changes and they, they basically pivot away from that right. idea. There's leadership changes and also market changes. You know, you go from 
oil really skyrocketing the price per barrel of oil to it, uh, it dropping and there being sort of a glut in the 80s. And also you have Lee Raymond taking over at Exxon, who was very much like, we're an oil company. We've always been an oil company. That's what we do. This other stuff is is nonsense. Um, so, and I do, I do just want to like give proper credit to the the journalists at Inside Climate News and Columbia Journalism School, the LA Times, for really like breaking that story open in 2015. They published all kinds of internal documents from Exxon. That's what allowed me to figure out like who was still alive from those documents and go talk to them. And they got a Pulitzer Prize for that? They (laughs) did. Yeah, well deserved. And as you cover in detail in your podcast, oil companies began to pivot away around the time of this pivot. Uh, They also launched PR campaigns, convincing the public that oil and gas was essential to our way of life. Let's hear from Brown University's Dr. Bob Brule on this. Literally since after World War II, the fossil fuel companies have actively engaged in public relations campaigns to sell the automobile and fossil fuels as the American way of life and as the good life. And the idea is that fossil fuels become part and partial of progress, the good life, economic gain, and jobs. And I have a a published report from Mobile that talks about how they seeded the collective unconsciousness with these ideas. I don't yeah. often think of oil companies talking about collective unconscious. <laughs> oh yeah, they, um, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry was one of the first clients of the PR industry way back, like, you know, many, many decades before climate change was a thing, before World War II, they were one of the earliest users of market research. They pilot tested, you know, uh, Elmo Roper's surveys in the 19-teens, I want to say, and, and early 20s to really figure out in a very granular way the way that people thought, how people were making decisions on both, you know, what they were buying, but also what they were voting for and what they could do to sort of shape people's ideas about not just, you know, what brand of gas they were filling up with, but, you know, how they thought about the environment and energy and how they thought about the economy and what was important and how they thought about American identity, all of that stuff. And then it really ramped up post-World War II. I I actually found a document from an early publicist of Standard Oil of New Jersey, which is now ExxonMobil, this very detailed strategy where he was pulling together all of his clients. So this at the time was like GM, Ford, Campbell's Soup, Procter & Gamble, Eli Lilly, Standard Oil of New Jersey, you know, all of these big American companies and saying like, all hands on deck, we need to remind Americans that free market capitalism is the thing that makes them American. And like all of your industries are really going to suffer if we allow people to continue to think that the government should be involved in regulating business as much as they have been during the war. So those are the kinds of things the industry has been doing for more than 100 years before we even get to the climate change issue. They're laying that kind of foundation. 
Right. Kind of the Naomi Ruskies has done a lot of work here yeah. about sort of market fundamentalism in her new book, kind of That's the right. big myth, kind of like it's really this free market ideology yeah. that is applied to all these areas. And you talk about the, uh, the these PR people as the madmen of big oil, as you call them, originated in so many tactics against climate action that we're familiar with today. Denial, delay, a lot of the D words, as well as false equivalency, astroturfing, and more. A notable member of this group was a man named Herb Schmertz, <laughs> Mobile Oil's yes. longtime PR person. And I, as I listen to your work, I keep coming back to Herb Schmertz. <laughs> as do Let's, I. I'm obsessed with him. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear a bit of Herb Schmertz and then talk about his impact. Well, it seems to me that the, the term spin doctor is something the press has manufactured to, to really deal with the problem the press has. The press, by and large, would like to control the agenda and the terms of reference of all debates, and they'd like to decide what information they're going to deliver and what information they're not going to deliver. So how powerful was Schmert's campaign against mainstream news organizations? Oh, man. I mean, this is, this is one of the things where I feel like when you talk about PR, a lot of times people think, oh, okay, they're, you know, pitching stories, they're getting their executives interviewed, maybe they're advising on an advertising strategy. No. What these guys mean by it is is literally public relations, and that means the relationship that the company and the industry has with various publics. So moms, single women, young people, working men, non-working men, you know, like every demographic, they have a different relationship that they're navigating, including with policymakers, influencers, and press people. And one of the ways to shape all of those relationships is to fundamentally change the structure of how the media works. And Herb Schmertz, I think more than anyone really did that. Like he came in and he said, you know, forget this whole thing where you're trying to be friends with the journalists. Like, you need to bully them. You need to call up their boss and threaten to get them fired if they're not covering your company correctly. You need to accuse them of bias, which was really effective. I, I credit him a lot with, with the emergence of false equivalence in uh, the 80s and 90s in a big way because he would accuse any journalist that didn't basically, like, let mobile have half of an article you know, to share their viewpoint of being biased against the industry, against business people in general. He went on this whole crusade with Hollywood because he was mad that, he, that the bad guys in every TV show were always businessmen. And so he would go and meet with all these studios and be like, you need to stop vilifying, you know, corporate businessmen. He like famously uh, had this big spat with the Wall Street Journal. This is obviously a very different Wall Street Journal than exists today, back in, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And he um, was mad about how they were covering the oil and gas industry in general, and mobile in particular. He demanded a meeting. At this meeting, he, you know, he had like a bullet point list where he was going to walk them through all the ways that they were, you know, missing Mobile's valuable insights into things. And he got as far as the first bullet point and the executive editor at the time just jumped up and said, everything you're saying is bullshit and left the room. And Herb Schmertz was like, that said, he canceled all their ad buys with the Wall Street Journal. He refused to let uh, Wall Street Journal journalists have access to like earnings numbers, reports, wouldn't let them talk to anyone at the company. <laughs> it's like, that's it. We're not going to even speak to you anymore. And at first, you know, 
the journal kind of stood their ground. But, you know, you look five or so years down the road and mobile's ads are back in play. Coverage has softened against the industry considerably. There are a lot more oil and gas executives being interviewed in stories about, you know, environmental policy and the impact that it has on the industry and all those kinds of things. So, you know, his tactic worked. He's also the guy who created the advertorial with the New York Times. So this, again, is something that Naomi Oreskes and Jeffrey Supran have covered extensively. But Mobile and then ExxonMobil had weekly opinion pieces in in the New York Times op-ed section that were ads, but they looked like editorials and highly effective. They were very they were there effective. for like decades. It seems like yeah, right? they were I think there it's for a close long time. to thirty years. Yeah, and his his work laid the early groundwork for the First Amendment corporate free speech argument yes. that oil companies are using today to defend their actions when it comes to client denial. Tell us about that and its importance. Yeah. So he helped create the advertorial, right, in print. It was very successful for them. He really came up with this whole idea of like, look, instead of selling gas, we should be selling ideas. We need to develop a personality for mobile and, you know, get people to think of us a a particular kind of way. He wanted them to be the thinking man's oil company. (laughs) um, So, you know, he had the advertorials. He was sponsoring content on PBS. They launched Masterpiece Theater. This is all happening in the late 70s. And then he has the idea of taking the advertorials to TV. So they make all of these video advertorials and they take them out to the big three TV stations at the time, which were NBC, ABC, and CBS. And um, CBS and ABC said, uh, no, these are propaganda and we're not going to run them. We're pretty sure it would be an ethics violation for us (laughs) and maybe even illegal. No way. And Herb Schmertz and Raleigh Warner, who was the CEO of, of Mobile at the time, really saw this as a big potential problem for them. They were like, if, you know, what if the New York Times starts reconsidering this too because of this? What if PBS starts to think, oh, maybe, you know, we're running afoul of, of ethics here? So they they made a big full court press. They went to all of the little like economics clubs in different cities. They went to the US Chamber. They were on radio and TV everywhere, making the argument that. It was very important to American democracy to protect corporate free speech. And this is like the first time that you start to see this being made as a legal argument. They also helped to gather support for a big case that predates Citizens United called Bilotti, um, which was really like the first kind of shoe to drop in in the, the whole corporate free speech arena. And today, ExxonMobil and Chevron and Shell and all these other companies are saying, look, Anything we've ever said about climate was in service of, of shaping policy in a particular way. That makes Public it, speech, not commercial speech. That's would, right. Would that the, makes it, they call it petitioning <clears throat> speech um, or political speech, which means that it's protected. So it's not and about now our it's product. Like, yeah. yeah, it's the number, it's the, the argument that they're making in, you know, multiple climate liability and fraud cases against them. Schwartz really is is the godfather. Schmertz. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Oil companies had other tools too, like weaponizing uncertainty, which you call scientists kryptonite. I love that phrase. (laughs) And they attacked and intimidated climate scientists and journalists. In your latest season of Drilled, we hear from Steve Cull, an investigative journalist for The New Yorker magazine, who authored an excellent book called Private Empire, Exxon Mobil and American Power. He had this to say about the company. 
I thought it was hard to report on the CIA. And I came to understand that Exxon was far more difficult and, and, and a little bit scarier even. I joked with my colleagues that you know, if I, if I disappeared, like if some van pulled up beside me on the street and I was bundled away and they never saw me again, that it wouldn't be Al-Qaeda, which I had reported on. It wouldn't be the CIA, which I had reported on. It'd probably be Exxon. They have that way of creeping people out of intimidation, actually. And it's a, it's a strategy and they're very um, practiced at it and effective at it. They have a lot of power and resources with which to intimidate people. Hearing that just creeps me out. I know. Yeah, he, he put it very um, succinctly and and uh, and boldly. But yeah, I mean, I think anyone who's done an Exxon story has has a story like that. <laughs> well, you have stories. You in the pod, you mentioned this that your hotel reservation was canceled. Yeah. What intimidation have you personally experienced? because of going after these companies this way? Yeah. I have to say, for legal reasons, I can neither prove nor disprove that Exxon was directly involved <laughs> with any of these things. But every time we've done an Exxon story, if there's travel involved, all my travel plans get canceled. On so that, Exxon calls Marriott and says... I'm, I, someone, I don't know. Someone calls someone and, you know... And your room, hotel room disappears. Or I show up at the airport and, and my ticket has been canceled or I go to get my rental car and that reservation's been canceled or, you know, it's just sort of like... So harassment kind of Yeah, it's just kind of like, okay, you know, this is happening. When I was in Guyana reporting our most recent season, my hotel room got broken into and my laptop was open with like various files on it, but nothing was stolen from my hotel room. So again, you know, I don't know who it was, but someone who was not interested in the cash on my nightstand um, <laughs> or, or taking my laptop with them. Um, and, you know, I don't leave anything that's sensitive on my laptop. So it's not like I was like, oh no, they have information I don't want them to have. It's just sort of like, okay, you know. But no, I mean, we live in an era where journalists are, have physical threats and worse, Absolutely. so nothing th of yeah. that nature has happened no, to you. No, no. Good, good. Uh, Yeah, I'm lucky in that regard. Coming up, the unexpected ties between a legal case involving the adoption of Native American children and the oil industry's interests. If they can prove in these Indian child welfare cases that that law is race-based, then that's potentially a domino to unravel the entire foundation of tribal sovereignty in the United States. That's up next. Hi, Climate One listeners. We're working on an upcoming show about climate migration and want to know if you've moved within the U.S. for climate reasons, maybe to a new place with a better climate outlook, or maybe you're concerned about a move you made for other reasons, like family or a new job, that took you to a place with more climate risk. Call our listener voicemail line to leave us a message with your story, and we may use it in an upcoming episode. The phone number can be found on our website, climateone.org, on the Contact Us page. Thanks. We're talking with Amy Westervelt about drilling, disinformation, and denial. As we talked about before the break, mobile oil PR guy Herb Schmertz and others were highly effective in buying time for the industry and delaying action on the necessary move away from fossil fuels to cleaner energy. 
Eventually, the public caught on, and cities and counties took oil companies to court using a legal doctrine known as nuisance cases. That's where RAGA, the Republican Attorneys General Association, comes in. Let's hear a little from Lisa Graves, executive director of True North Research, a watchdog group focused on corporate distortion of American democracy. Something has happened over the last 20 years in terms of this the rise of RAGA, the Republican Attorneys General Association, where we know that it's a pay-to-play operation. We know that it has had enormously distorting effect on U.S. law. Um, it provides a mechanism for corporations to pass money through to help uh, attorneys general in ways that they would not be able to individually solicit for their own campaigns, given their role, their regulatory role over those very industries. Amy Westervelt says she's learned a lot from Lisa Graves about money flowing to climate obstruction. She's done an enormous amount of of research. I think that the main reason anyone knows about the role that, for example, the Federalist Society has played in installing certain judges, um, both on the Supreme Court and on lower courts, is due to Lisa's research originally. Um, she was one of the early people to start kind of unfurling the the web of things around the, the Koch brothers and everything that they were funding. Um, when it comes to Raga in particular, she has been really instrumental in kind of lifting up the role of that organization in U.S. politics, and they have an incredible amount of power. Um, That organization started as a direct response to the tobacco litigation in the 90s. It was like, hey, that was an effective strategy. Maybe we should be doing it on our side. But also, we've been neglecting attorneys general as, you know, political um, appointees. And so, so initially, in its first decade... Raga was really focused on just getting more Republican attorneys general in power because there were way more Democratic attorneys general. In the most recent decade, it's been bringing these big structural cases. So what will happen is, you know, you'll get like Ken Paxton in Texas or the attorney general of West Virginia who, you know, brought this case, West Virginia versus EPA, and they will kind of file the case, but, you know, a dozen or more Republican attorneys general will sign on to it as well, which is often a good way to get cases to the Supreme Court. And they will make a a big kind of structural argument. So like in the case of West Virginia versus EPA, you know, the government shouldn't be involved in regulating emissions. They like to bring in things like the um, the major questions doctrine, which was a big thing in, in West Virginia versus EPA, where, you know, these kind of very vague, very nebulous things that they can use to kind of expand the power of any one ruling. So in that case, for example, it, it says that anytime a, um, a policy brings forth or answers major questions that really should be being answered by the government itself, by Congress, that, you know, that's that's not something that an agency should be doing. So those are the kinds of things that RAGA does. It's not just in the environment and climate space. They've been very active in, for example, pushing against abortion rights, um, pushing against transgender rights. This is something I think that people maybe miss in the climate movement a lot, that that when you're talking about an organization like RAGA or like groups like Cato Institute, Heartland Institute, the Texas, Texas Public Policy Foundation, 
These are not single issue entities. They combine all of like the the laundry list of items in one place and they and they spend the same amount of money and put the same operatives on all of them. And and it's a very effective strategy. And one that I was really shocked to learn in this land, another podcast you're involved with, is the connection with the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was another kind of like working at a deeper Trojan level. Horse. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Which is so explain what that's about and how is that connected? The adoption of indigenous children, how is that connected to fossil fuels? Yeah, it's it's a pretty dark story. <laughs> um so In 2013, you saw the first really big constitutional challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act since its passage in 1978. It was passed unanimously by Congress in 1978. Um, It was meant to deal with the fact that indigenous kids were 30% more likely to be removed from their homes. They were often being put into homes that totally disconnected them from not just their family, but also their tribe and their culture. And so the idea was to just put some guardrails in place to, you know, kind of force child protective services to ask some specific questions when they removed Indian children from their homes. Went largely uncontested for decades. And then all of a sudden, you see this big high profile case going to the Supreme Court. It was called, it gets shorthanded as baby girl <laughs> um, because, you know, it's it's uh, an anonymous child that's involved in, in the case. In that case, they, you start to hear for the first time this argument that ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, is race-based and therefore unconstitutional. This is a really big deal because it's not just talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act, it's talking about the whole basis for what everyone calls Indian law. So the same laws that let tribes have their own health care service, that give tribes land and water rights, for example, which is where you start to see fossil fuel companies getting interested, gaming rights, all of that stuff. It's all based on the, the legal understanding that Indian is a political, not racial classification. Um, that, you know, you are a citizen of a particular tribe and that that has nothing to do with ethnicity or race and that that these particular rights are imbued by treaties between two sovereign nations, not given by the government to a particular group of people because of their ethnic background. So if they can prove in these Indian child welfare cases that that law is race-based, then that's potentially a domino to unravel the entire foundation of tribal sovereignty in the United States. The reason I started looking at it was that a reporter that had been looking at it for a long time, Rebecca Nagel, came to me and was like, this new law firm is involved in these cases. Like, I've been following these for a while. Now, all of a sudden, they have this big shot corporate law firm that's taking all these cases pro bono. And I was like, oh, what, what law firm is it? And she goes, Gibson Dunn. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, Gibson Dunn is a big oil and gas firm. They're Chevron's attorney. Um, They represent lots of other companies in the oil and gas space. They also happen to have a lot of gaming clients as well, which is the other industry that stands to benefit from what might happen in these cases. So we started looking into it. We figured out that it was being funded by, initially by the Bradley Foundation and, you know, kind of pieced it all together from there. But, um, but you know, those are the kinds of things that can happen where you have people that are looking for 
clever legal strategies, and, and in this case, a, a really cynically very clever cover story because, you know, child welfare cases are complicated. There's a lot of, like, family drama that's, that's at the surface level. It's very easy to get people distracted by what's happening in this particular case and not, you know, what the actual overarching goal is. Right. And yeah, yeah so suddenly this big law firm suddenly takes an interest in indigenous uh, children. children. There's a very sympathetic <laughs> plaintiff in that case, this couple that just wants to adopt a baby. It's got, we're doing a good thing adopting this, yeah. this, yeah. this indigenous child and giving them a nice home. I also yeah. noticed that Caitlin Halligan, a Gibson Dunn attorney who worked for Chevron against Stephen Donzinger, the lawyer who led the case against Chevron's massive oil pollution in Ecuador, covered in season two of Drilled. Caitlin Halligan was just appointed to New York's highest court. So what's the impact of that? Chevron's lawyer now is yeah. on the highest court of New York, which has <laughs> been out front on, uh, on, you know, moving away from carbon fuels. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it potentially has a big impact. Anytime you have an, an industry-friendly judge in a, a district like that where that sees a lot of cases around this issue, you know, it raises questions about how biased or not that person is going to be um, and what kind of... Wouldn't she have to recuse herself from Chevron cases? You would think, but, you know, you'd think <laughs> that Amy Coney Barrett would recuse herself from Shell cases, and she's not. Alito kind of flips back and forth, given his ConocoPhillips ties. So, you know... <laughs> We'll see yeah. how that one plays out. Each season of Drilled has a, a different focus, and the current season entitled Light Sweet Crude is focused on new oil colonialism in Guyana, small for those Americans who can't find it on a map. It's a South American country. A key character is Melinda Janke, a former attorney for BP who helped write Guyana's environmental law. That was before big oil came to town. My heart just sank because I know oil is a disaster and it's the worst possible thing that could have happened to Guyana. And people just began to go crazy at the idea of all this oil wealth. And sure enough, the first thing that we saw was that they entered into a new agreement which was secret. They wouldn't release it to people. When they finally released it, it was atrocious. So who is Melinda Janke and what's she trying to do? She's a, a really interesting person. So yeah, she did work for BP for a few years in the UK before going home to Guyana, um, where she continued to work in corporate law, but started to get interested in environmental law. She helped to write the first kind of major Environmental Protection Act in Guyana, which launched their Environmental Protection Agency. She also helped to draft a right to a healthy environment in Guyana's constitution. And part of why she did that was that she had seen the country go through several kind of phases of what uh, development economists call the resource curse, which is, you know, when a country um, that is less developed discovers a, a valuable resource and then, you know, lots of other entities kind of swoop in and the economy starts to become totally dependent on that 
and most of that the money element goes. and most of the money leaves. Yeah, they often end up worse off than than they were before they developed that resource. So, I mean, Guyana has been through, you know, gold, bauxite, diamonds, timber, I mean, just an incredible number of waves of this. And every single time it kind of goes the same way. So Melinda thought, well, maybe we can put some laws in place that would make it harder for that to happen. And then she kind of watched as... Exxon announced in 2015 that they discovered large amounts of oil offshore, and here we go again. And now this time, there are laws in place, but the government's just choosing not to enforce those laws. So she has now filed seven lawsuits in the last three or four years, all against the government. She's not suing Exxon. She's suing her own government. She's from Guyana. She's suing her own government for not enforcing the laws that she also helped to write. <laughs> so it was funny, like in one of the, in one of the cases, I think um, initially, in, in most of these cases, Exxon has either requested to be added or the judge has added them. And in one of them, Exxon kind of tried to argue that she was misinterpreting the law. And she was like, that's an interesting argument because I wrote it. So I'm pretty <laughs> sure I know what it means. <laughs> and what impact has Russia's war on Ukraine had on the oil market and then Guyana? Oh, man, a huge, huge impact. Um, so, you know, you, you saw the American Petroleum Institute started mobilizing its messaging around Russia and Ukraine before the official invasion happens. So as soon as, you know, troops start to appear along the Ukraine border, you see API President Mike Summers making the rounds on all the, the cable news shows saying, you know, gas prices are about to go up because there's this like unsettling thing happening and because Biden's climate policies have are making you know oil and gas more expensive. At the time, this is like pre-IRA, pre a lot of things, there was really no climate policy to speak of, um, but they were kind of seeding that talking point. Then you have the invasion in February. Um, within a few days, the API has presented its kind of laundry list of, of requests to the government, um, including, you know, fast-tracking permits for uh, liquid natural gas export terminals, pipelines, all that kind of stuff. Within a couple weeks, the DOE is starting to fast-track those permits. A bunch of terminals that had been kind of stalled out get going again. And then... So they're really seizing on this moment, fast-track this stuff to bring prices down, which is a receptive audience among any politician. Right. They're saying, oh, like, if we can just, you know, get this stuff going, then then it will stop gas prices from going higher. And also, they want to take advantage of the fact that uh, Europe is going to need gas from somewhere that's not Russia, and they want it to be Americans. So by, you know, exactly a month from the invasion date, Biden makes this announcement that he has um, inked this partnership with the European Union to lock in uh, gas orders for at least the next decade. On the back of that, you see many American companies pushing for really long-term contracts in Europe to the point where actually European officials are like, you know, we don't like trying to find ways to make it illegal to sign these things because they're worried now that they're going to be locked into 20, 30 year contracts with American companies that will make it impossible for them to meet their Paris commitments. Right. Right. Um, so they're getting in a little bit of a, a legal bind themselves there because, you know, European governments that are doing things that are 
setting them off track to meet their Paris uh, climate agreements are being sued for that. So they're like kind of in this position. Meanwhile, Russian imports into Europe have increased 46% from pre to post invasion. So the idea that there's a huge, you know, immediate shortfall of gas that needs to be filled by more U.S. drilling is is ridiculous on a few points. First, you know, it takes like a good few years to get an export terminal built and operational. <laughs> you don't just like, you know, turn on a switch one day to the next. Two, no one has really stopped taking Russian gas. People are buying it through what secondary ships as kind of an exactly. underground market and yeah. Russian hydrocarbons. And not even that hidden. I mean, Total's just straight up importing into France mm. from Russia. So it's not... It's not being hidden that well anyway. <laughs> the industry did a great job of, of leveraging that invasion to, to lock in gas for the next 20 years. Coming up, oil company climate deception and opportunism is not a thing of the past. Their marketing's different, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, their websites have changed. But, you know, they're still leveraging uh, a war to sell more gas. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon. That means that you, as a subscriber, can get access to Climate One episodes free of ads interrupting your listening experience. For just $5 a month, your Patreon membership also gets you access to our Climate One Discord channel, where you can discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one. We're talking with Amy Westervelt, investigative journalist behind the podcast Drilled, Damages, and Hot Take. The second season of Drilled is about crab fishermen who brought the first major oil lawsuit after they realized climate disruption would threaten their livelihood. One of the key reasons they sued was not because they believed that humans burning fossil fuels causes climate disruption. They sued because they felt betrayed by oil companies. Let's hear from Lori French, part of a crabbing family. We saw some documentation at, and that was, that was a big eye-opener. And I would like to think in my Pollyanna world that um, most people honor, operate on an honest playing field, but... They don't, and I don't know why I still keep getting surprised by that. I just yeah, do. Amy Westervelt says this reporting really changed the way she thought about climate. A good number of the, the crab fishermen told me that they were, you know, the jury's still out on climate. Lori talked a lot about, you know, ice ages and Henry VIII and, you know, natural warming and all of these things, but yet had signed on to a lawsuit about the oil company's role in delaying action on climate. And I was just sort of confused about, you know, how does this happen? And she, um, she and several other people told me, well, you know, we saw patents that they had taken out that showed that they were, you know, re-engineering offshore oil platforms to deal with sea level rise. Um, they were getting patents on tankers, oil tankers that could navigate a melting Arctic. And this is in like, you know, the 80s. So long before they're, you know, saying this is a real problem. And so her 
conclusion was, look, it doesn't matter what's causing it. They knew, even if like, like I can still believe that it's a natural thing, which she does, but they knew that it was happening and they prepared their industry for it. And they told us not to worry about it. And that's not fair. So betrayal. Yeah. And just basic fairness, you know, equal access to information, which to me was, is interesting because a lot of like, a lot of climate people will kind of rally around this, like believe science, you know, idea. And I think if you look at science literacy rates in the U.S., if you're going to hang your hat on believe science, I, I think you're going to be waiting a long time. Most, most Americans know? don't know a scientist and don't want to go back to high school chemistry and biology. Right? No. Yeah, no. So I think that meeting people where they're at and also giving people like in, in Lori's case, you know, she has a certain identity around politics and ideology that don't really allow for, you know, climate change is real and bad and we need to do something about it. And so you gave her away. Not, so this she didn't have to choose between her tribe yeah. and and this and accepting that the oil companies lied to me, which is different than accepting climate change That's is right. happening. That's right. Yeah. It kind of gave her a way to to sidestep that whole question and still, you know, participate in something that that a lot of people see as a, a real tool for for climate accountability and for getting action on climate, which is litigation. Right. You know, it's true that so many people, you know, particularly on the left, climate, they're like, climate, science, science, science. That doesn't yeah. relate. Which, you know, I love climate scientists. They're great. Like, we need all of the science. And yes, like having that data to point to is, is critical. But that's not going to be the thing that sways a large number of people. And it seems like, if I remember correctly, that one thing that really got tobacco companies was they lied, you know, that's that right. sort of the, the yeah. was a really big part of that. And that betrayal, they told me something that they knew wasn't true. And that right. whether that that's really seems to be one of the through lines between tobacco to oil. Yeah, it is. And that's, I think, also what makes the, the idea that, yeah, but we lied in the interest of shaping policy argument very interesting and potentially dangerous. Um, because, you know, if if they can make that argument and, and set a kind of legal precedent around that, then you wouldn't even be able to bring something like the tobacco litigation. What, what does that open the door for, for companies to be able to do if lying in the interest of shaping politics is okay? One of the most impactful pieces of journalism I've seen in recent years is an excellent frontline series on the power of big oil. They got rare and reflective moments on camera from people who were or supported people who you call the, you know, the madmen of, of big oil. Um, Jerry Taylor, for example, spent two decades at the Cato Institute, a think tank funded by the Koch brothers. And Jerry Taylor says in this, I look back on the work I did at the time with a lot of regrets. If I had known at the time what ExxonMobil knew internally, I would definitely have been in a different place. Hmm. Paul Bernstein at Charles River Associates, which did economic reports, which were funded by the oil industry and not really disclosed and reported as that funding wasn't uh, disclosed, said in, in Frontline, quote, I worked on a report paid by fossil fuel industry that only looked at the costs of addressing climate change, not the benefits of reducing uh, climate disruption. So they looked at one right. half of it. Yeah, I wish I weren't part of that looking back. I wish I weren't part of delaying action. Clearly, I was on the wrong side of history. 
That's Paul Bernstein. To me, those are people of interesting stories because they show reflection, regret. And I'm curious how often you talk to those people or try to get at those nuanced stories. There's lots of oil villains in, in your reporting. Right, right. Have you sought after what you think about people who've had a change of heart or a change of mind? Yeah, I think those stories are really interesting too. Um, we actually did an episode on the research paper that that first brought um, Bernstein. Is it Bernstein? The, Paul Bernstein. Paul Bernstein, yeah. Ben, this was done by Ben Franta, who's a, a researcher. He's at the Oxford Center for Climate Law. He's, he's uncovered now. lots of great he's documents. He's uncovered lots of great documents, and he was the one that kind of found this. And he got Bernstein to talk to him about it um, for a, a research paper, which we did an episode on as well. I didn't get Bernstein himself to talk to me, which I would have loved to do, but um, but I think it's so interesting, especially in that case, because those economic analyses were used as the justification for not acting on climate for decades. You still see them pop up in IPCC reports even, like a lot of the economic models that are underpinning what is and isn't feasible or how feasible it is still have this, this idea baked in where you're only looking at the cost of acting and not the cost of inaction, right. which is growing, right. you know, um, so yeah, that's still so prevalent. And yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah it's like, oh, we can't do this because it'll cost. Yeah. Doing nothing has a huge cost, but it's we don't huge. measure that. You and I both work in the media. Many people talk about the media as a monolith. We know that it's right. not, yes. you know, podcasters, public radio, cable TV, you know, we're all sort of lumped together. And often the oil industry is presented as a monolith by environmentalists and yeah. others. Mm -hmm. Large branded oil companies are different than independent operators, refiners, you know, if it's like big Big oil is that it's like it's one big monolith. You know, I'm curious if you think about, you know, whether your work perpetuates that image of a monolith and kind of this, you know, it's all big oil, like, you know, Exxon and Lee Raymond pulling all the strings. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I try not to. I actually think that it's it's really not just big oil. Um, there's a lot of complicity along the way with, you know, trade groups, PR firms, media, politicians, other industries too, like for some reason, the automotive industry has kind of gotten a pass on a lot of climate stuff, even though they're right there the whole way with the oil companies. To well, me, there might be, some might say there, there's, there, there's more space between oil and autos now. Maybe, you know, they have less incentive today to, to want to sell more combustion engine cars, right? So it'll be interesting to see actually how that kind of changes the relationship between those two. But, you know, you have other examples are like the National Association of Manufacturers is kind of there all along as well. There are lots of other people who are involved in um, obstructing climate action. I would say also that we haven't had accountability for any of them. So I would kind of push back on the idea that like it's bad to you know, talk about big oil or big industry or whatever, because none of them have actually been held accountable for, for any of this, nor have they changed how they operate in, in any meaningful way. I think we, we're still at less than 3% capital expenditures on anything that's not fossil fuel development, for example. Um, they still have an enormous amount of power in not just the U.S. government, but governments all over the world. I mean, Guyana is a really good example where Exxon is kind of running the show there at this point. Um, so the idea that like 
on the one hand, I don't I don't want to overly vilify any one player within within a system, you know, because I think look, oil companies are doing what they are incentivized and enabled to do. They're, you know, they're, right? capitalism is exactly. their shareholder value. It's they're like doing what they're supposed they're to do. They're focused on profits and that's like, and, and if we want them to be focused on something different, they need to be, you know, forced to do that. On the other hand, I think the idea that like climate denial was a thing that happened in the past that had this past impact and is no, you know, that like these companies are any different now than they were in the 80s is not really backed by any evidence. Their marketing's different, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, their websites have changed. But, you know, they're still, you know, like for example, leveraging uh, a war to sell more gas. Like, you know, again, a thing that they are encouraged and enabled to do by the systems that we have in place. But that doesn't necessarily give them them a total pass, especially because they've been so integral in shaping those systems. You know, they can't say, well, we're just doing what the government tells us to do when they have so much power over what the government tells everybody to do. They've written a lot of the rules of the game. And yeah, we had a, a board member of ConocoPhillips on a recent episode of Climate One, Arjun Murthy, saying that oil and gas companies will be terrible as energy companies. They're not good at it. So right. you know, the, the idea that, oh, we should make them <laughs> energy companies, kind of like what they wanted to do I mean, potentially they, when they're if, the Bell Labs of energy, they were right. on that path. It didn't if, work out. I think if they, if they were going to do that, it would have happened by now. Um, so I don't, you know, I will say in terms of the, you know, the monolith thing, I think it's very dangerous to lump, you know, everyone that works at an oil company together. There are lots of oil workers, engineers, managers, all kinds of folks who have skills that, that are needed in, in an energy transition um, in lots of other kinds of, of industries um, and who are not calling the shots. Like, I don't think that the entirety of, you know, ExxonMobil, for example, is to blame for how the company is behaving in Guyana. But there are specific people making specific decisions um, that have pretty far-reaching consequences. And, and I think it's, it's disingenuous of them to be trying to develop as many fossil fuel resources as possible you know, while at the same time claiming to be actively working on climate. Right. And there are individuals who've left fossils to go work in renewables right. and, you know, various well, biofuels or solar, whatever. I know people who have, have made that. Well, you've talked to so many people and had so many fascinating interviews. What tape gives you goosebumps or what makes you giddy mm. finding hearing? Like what's like, oh. The thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is um, there There was some tape I got in, in season one with Ed Garvey, who was the guy who did all of the research on like the big research tanker that Exxon had in the 70s, where they were really, they were trying to understand how CO2 emissions behave along the equator and how the ocean, you know, does or doesn't absorb CO2 and where it releases CO2 and all those kinds of things. And he was in charge of doing that research. And... Um, you know, at the time he was like this young, fresh out of school, you know, really excited. He's like, oh, Exxon was like the most exciting place for a scientist to work. And then his job got cut when when the whole kind of research program got cut and he went on to do other things. But I, I had this conversation with him where he talked about the fact that like he had 
he had been watching the company for years since then with, with kind of horror at what was being done with the research that, that he and his colleagues had done and, and feeling sort of like he should do something about it, but not knowing what he could do about it. And it's like, it was something that had been reported on. He'd been interviewed in lots of different magazine stories and stuff, but you could hear the emotion in his voice in in the tape you know you could he was kind of like there was like a catch in his throat where he really was just like you know you can empathize with it feeling sort of like I have like knowledge and information that might be helpful here and also like you know I, I worked with this company I should be able to do something here and, and feeling sort of powerless to do anything um yeah that's one that like sticks with me so what have you learned in 20 years of covering Big Oil's crimes and how have you personally <laughs> changed? Well, one thing that like really shifted how I think was was the crab story and like talking to so many people who really boiled it down for me to this issue of of fairness and and that is something that I think relates to to any kind of big story right now that that you know the idea that everyone should have the same information, that that disinformation and and sort of the the overwhelming amount of space and volume that corporations have to speak with in this country is is quite damaging to to democracy and to people's ability to be able to make decisions. So right now, you know, my my current obsession is sort of the free speech thing and just how how much you know, the fossil fuel industry and, and other industries are working really hard right now to criminalize free speech in this country. There's There are anti-protest laws, they're called critical infrastructure laws in about 20 states now in the U.S. that massively increase the fines and prison time associated with protest near anything that's considered critical infrastructure, which can be a pipeline, you know, power station, railroad, highway overpass, a bridge, like, I mean... You're near critical infrastructure in most places in any city. Um, so the impact that that might have on free speech across the board is um, concerning. And at the same time, to see these companies making the argument that lying is protected speech for corporations. So sort of expanding corporate free speech and working to curb individual free speech um, is something that I think is very concerning, and it's been going on for 20-odd years. Yeah, it really got a boost after uh, Standing Rock and the Dakota Access Pipeline. Yes. A lot of those laws really grew out of that. Amy Westervelt yeah. is an award-winning investigative journalist, host of podcast Drilled, Damages and Hot Take, and executive producer at Critical Frequency Podcast Network. Thank you, Amy, so much for sharing Thanks for having me. Thank you. Find links to Amy Westervelt's podcast in the show notes on our new and improved website, climateone.org. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be hard, difficult, exciting, and interesting, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing with your friends and family, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Ariana Brocious is co-host, editor, and producer. Austin Cologne is producer and editor. 
Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wensi Shada is our development manager. Ben Testani is our communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>